This is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. We're back. I'm Clayton Howe. And today with me on the phone is Steve Douglas Craig. Steve, thank you for chatting with me today. You're welcome. I look forward to it. I want to take it back to the beginning of time for you. What were your entertainment dreams growing up in Australia? Uh, I didn't really have any, to be honest with you. Uh, it's not. It's really not an industry that I ever saw myself being in. You know, I, I lived in regional Australia, um, just north of Sydney. Uh, I was brought up on a farm. And uh, so I, it wasn't something that I had planned to be in, really. I, I, you know, at around 15 years old, I realized I wasn't an outdoorsy kind of person and I wasn't going to enjoy the farm much longer. Um, so I actually joined the Australian Army there for a little while. Uh, got me off the land a little bit and uh, and then I spent about four or five years in the army and then and then that's when I actually discovered the theatre. Uh, you know, when I got out of the army, I was living in Brisbane at the time and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was only 19, 20 years old and, and uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, to be honest with you. I bartended for a while and, and uh, did lots of stuff like that and got into the hospitality industry, but uh, it wasn't I was invited by uh, this girl that I was working with at the time to a small little uh, community type, you know, amateur theatre up in Brisbane. And I, I, <laughs> my first ever theatre show, first ever live show really, um, was Harold Pinter's The Caretaker, <laughs> which was, uh, you know, that it wasn't the most dazzling performance, but. Um, <laughs> I really got, I, I got a bug from it, you know, I, something bit me and, uh, and I, I started doing drama workshops there and before you knew it, before, before I knew it, um, I, uh, I was uh, applying to go to the Queensland University of Technology to do their theatre program. What was, the, what was the decision from performing to creating? Was there a realisation moment for you in time? No, I think it was just... Uh, I think it was a bug of the theatre that, that started it all. Um, you know, I, once I got into college, and I think telling stories physically was appealing, and I really enjoyed the, you know, um, I ended up doing a program which wasn't just acting. It was, uh, I was able to write, and I was able to direct uh, one-act plays, and, you know, got an immersion in most, in, in pretty much all of it, like kind of like a knife and fork or a fork and spoon kind of course where you just put it together yourself. But... Um, uh, I think from there I got to experience everything, and I, I and that's where I first experienced filmmaking was uh, was uh, doing a theatre program, and I took a minor in film media studies, and and I really enjoyed that side of it. And um, you know, the writing bug for me didn't come until later, but uh, uh, I think for most of my career, for that ten to fifteen years after college, you know, it was all theatre for me. I, I did a lot of theatre work and. You know, I ended up training with an American guy uh, in stage combat, which is choreographing fight scenes for theatre. Um, I did a lot of that work, actually. I made a living doing that and TV commercials for about three or four years straight. So um, that was a, that was a pretty amazing thing because at that time, which was the, probably the mid-90s or so, there was no real industry in the Australian theatre uh, with regard to stage combat. You know, we, we had fencers and we had boxers and people like that who were coming in to work with actors and they had no theatrical sense whatsoever. 
But when I came out of college, you know, I, I would, I'd already trained in things like uh, Elizabethan Rapier and Dagger, Medieval Broadsword, Japanese Katana with this guy Cornell University and uh, he was a member of the Society of American Fight Directors. He was Australian, but he was back home after studying and it just opened up a whole new world of creating for me, you know, of, of really looking at not only directing, but also performance on a much more uh, uh, unusual level, you know, of, of how do how does violence fit in the theatre? How do we keep actors safe? You know, that kind of stuff. And I really dug deep into that and, and you know, ended up doing some amazing kind of, you know, working with some amazing people, you know, Hugo Weaving. Uh, I did work with Hugo Weaving on The White Devil. Uh, he was amazing, and and, uh, and I did a tour with uh, Les Miserables around Australia. You know, so theatre was a very big part of my, my first creative process, and it was all performance, you know. But I was writing as well, and uh, I was writing poetry and, and uh, playing around with writing a play, stage play. I've uh, written a couple of stage plays that have never seen the light of day. Um, maybe one day they will, I don't know. <laughs> but I think very much in the early in the early ages of my career was physical storytelling what was your your first screenplay pre-afi how long did that take what was that about what was the um the impulse to go ahead and write a screenplay you know uh, i was living in america already um i i always kind of you know i loved film i loved television um you know i'd worked in it as an actor and and uh but it never really occurred to me to sit down and write anything. And it wasn't until my, I guess my early thirties that I really started to, to think about, uh, you know, writing a screenplay. And actually I was touring the world on an Australia council grant. Um, mm. I was studying, uh, theater movement around the world. Uh, and, uh, I ended up, um, I ended up in banks in Canada doing an international stage combat workshop there. And, and I was also choreographing uh, a show that was going into the Brooklyn Music Academy and uh, on the other coast. And so that, for me, I think the, the Australia Council grant really got me motivated, you know, uh, on a creative level. And I found myself, you know, I, I met my wife here and uh, she's American and, and um, we ended up settling into uh, Gaithersburg in Maryland uh, for a little bit uh, before I got into grad school. But um, it was there that uh, while I was trying to find out how I was going to fit into my new life here, um, you know, I, I did some voiceover, you know, some book narration for the Library of Congress. Um, I did four shows in a row at the uh, Shakespeare Theatre in Washington, D.C. as an actor. Um, and while I was doing all that stuff and tutoring kids and all kinds of stuff, I had like a, you know, I'd put a whole bunch of jobs together so, to earn a living. And, yeah. um, and I started, I started writing for the, the uh, Washington Asia Times as a reporter, you know, just doing like small stories and human interest stories. And yeah. I just started, I, I really don't know the seed of it, but I started work on this story about a Salvation Army, you know, about a kid whose mum and dad were Salvation Army hierarchy. And, and he was this kid who had a sister who was really rigidly into the religious side of Salvation Army and and uh, but all this kid wanted to be was a was a DJ you know like a nightclub DJ and and uh, but he, he was forced to, to take on the family mantle of 
you know, that, that whole, uh, you know, salvationist looking after the shelter, you know, running things on a day-to-day basis. You know, his mum and dad were getting older, but secretly at night he would sneak out and he was this masked kind of uh, mysterious DJ that was a real hit, you know, but no one knew who he was. And so I, for some reason that story stuck with me and I started writing the outline for it and, and uh, I wrote it and finished it and I showed it to this guy at, who was a professor at George Washington University, a friend of mine, and he read it and he said, you know, you, you, maybe you should be doing this as a living. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, those kind, when people have said those things in the past, it's the same thing that got me into acting. You know, when I, you know, when I was working in bars as a kid, people would say to me, why don't you, have you ever thought about acting? Um, and I was like, no. And so I thought about it. <laughs> right, right, right. And sometimes, sometimes you take those little things in life if you're aware of them and you can stay aware of those little things inside you that, that, that you're passionate about and that you love and then someone suddenly affirms it for you um, in a serious way and just being in that moment. I went home to my wife after he'd read the, read the script, you know, and it was called Nietzsche's Army. It was my first ever screenplay. And, uh, and I've still got it somewhere. I'll pull that out one day. But uh, I, I went home to my wife and I said, this is what happened. What do you think, you know? And she said, well, maybe you should look at grad school, you know? Um, so I did that. And uh, I applied to the American Film Institute that very year, the conservatory out in L.A., and I got in, you know, based on that screenplay and the other criteria that they required. So, wow. you know, that was the first time I'd ever thought about writing a film and it, it kind of affirmed for me that maybe there's something here and that I should follow it, you know. Yeah, and that felt, you know, with each each um, endeavor that you've taken within entertainment, has have they all felt right? Have they all felt correct? Or has it taken time to warm up to them? No, I, I, I've been lucky enough to, you know, my instincts are not always right. Sometimes I should take that beat and really think about it. But, um, but I think, you know, one of the reasons I left home as a kid was that, you know, much to my dad's irritation, um, <laughs> I just wasn't that kid who wanted to go and help him build fences. Just wasn't. I, I wanted to stay inside and listen to music and read. And I wanted to, unfortunately, you know, I, it's not a regret or a resentment or anything, but my parents were not people who really had ever gone to college. I was the first one in my family to go to university, and so they didn't have the tools to guide me in that direction necessarily. Um, so I had to find it on my own, and I, and I think that's what really created a struggle, and a, I had to trust in my own instincts a little more because of that. And I think these days a lot of people don't trust those instincts because they're being steered in certain directions even if they don't want to go there and and i've been lucky enough where i had to really trust myself and my own path early on in my in my teens and uh and i think that's what brought me here you know to where i am now is is that you know i was able to really find once i discovered the theater i thought nah this this feels right something's really amazing here i don't know what it is but you know coming from the australian army um and i'm talk again i'm talking about the early 80s i'm not talking about today it was a very different environment back then you know 
1980s Australia was basically 1950s America, and uh, and you know we're a little behind. But um, but back then the the Australian Army was a racist, misogynistic, homophobic environment that uh, that you know I fitted into. You know I, I wasn't I was from a white rural family. I, I you know my parents were not you know burning crosses or anything of that nature, but. Right. There was a certain, there was a certain lack of cultural, you know, understanding, and uh, that didn't fit either. You know, once they got into university, out of the army, into university, and discovered all this, you know, all these people from different walks of life, and it was just, I was blown. I just, just something felt like, okay, I'm home. Yeah. You know, I, I am, a, I am a creative, and I am meant to be with all these fascinating, interesting people. You know. Yeah. Was there a moment in time that you remember having that experience? Were you in like a classroom or on campus where you were just like, oh my God, this is it? <laughs> um, no. Okay. It was before that. It, it, was, it was that moment of being in that little amateur theater in Brisbane, Australia. Yeah. That, that was the moment for me where I'm, I'm watching these three seasoned actors, professional actors, on a small 75-seat house stage doing Harold Pinter, which I had very little understanding what the hell was going on because I wasn't versed in theatre. <laughs> All I knew was something bit me. And and as soon as I'd come out of that theatre, I said to the girl that I was with, I'm wondering when we should come back to the next show. And she was involved in doing part-time drama classes with the artistic director of that theatre. And so she invited me to those. And so I started going to those. And from there, I, you know, because I left, I left high school at sophomore year. I didn't finish high school when I, was, when I was a teenager. And so I went straight into the army at 15 years old, and, and, um, which you could do back then as an army apprentice if you learned a trade. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go and learn a trade. All my friends are learning a trade. You know, um, even though all the aptitude tests told my parents that this guy is going to be useless with his hands, um, and it turned out that's what I was. I failed everything, and uh, yeah. and and it wasn't until I really discovered theatre in that moment that I realised, okay, I think this is right. I think I have a feeling that I love this. I don't know if I'm good at it. It doesn't matter right now. I, I have to see this through. And so I went back to high school as an adult and, and uh, I finished my junior and senior years in one year at a secondary college and, and uh, applied to you know, the theatre program straight out of there and got in. And, and, you know, I was probably four or five years older than some of the kids coming straight out of high school. Um, but I just knew from there, once I started doing, yeah, you know, I just threw myself into it. It became full time for me. It became a whole new lifestyle. You know, um, but it was that it definitely was that amateur theater, that little instinct in my stomach that told me, you know what, this, there's something here. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to jump ahead a little bit to uh, the time in your life when you were waking up at 4 a.m. to write <laughs> before going to your job. Uh, wondering right. if you could talk on speak on discipline a little bit. Any thoughts you have on it? Oh. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> you know, when I got in, when I got into the American Film Institute, um, into their screenwriting program, uh, I guess you know schools like that are fairly exclusive, and they 
they fill you full of, you know, you're the greatest. And the fact is that I was there on a two-year immersive program to learn how to transition from a theatrical storytelling mentality into the more visual medium, you know. I mean, who hasn't watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of films and TV shows and all that, but I've never written one. And so, um, you know, I, I know that that is that is something that I needed to do if I wanted to go to that next level. But when I came, you know, I'm not a trust fund baby, you know. Um, there are those guys out there, I'm not bitter toward that either. It sounds like I am, but I'm not. You know, <laughs> everyone's different, come into it a different way, but. Um, I didn't have someone who was able to finance and someone who was able to help me through school. I had to pay it for it myself. Um, and you know, uh, that, that created in me a certain amount of, well, I've put the money in, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this. Um, when I got out of college, you know, I had to get a job. I I just had to get one. I, I couldn't sit around and write, you know, I, I went to school with a couple of guys who came out and, you know, uh, I went to school with Dan Casey. He was an extremely talented dude. He's just written Fast and Furious 9. Um, wow. And uh, he, he he was in the same class as me at, at AFI, but I didn't really have anything to show that I, I wasn't a strong enough writer yet, you know. Um, and these guys, were, they're just super talented. And, and that, you know, Andrew Baldwin as well, who's rewriting Logan's Run. And, and uh, you know, he, his script that he came out of college with was called The Outsiders about a Japanese internment camp. And to be honest, phenomenal. They were phenomenal uh, scripts. I didn't have that. And so I knew that I was going to have to jump into a job and do a day job. And I was going to, if I was going to be successful, I had to find time around that every day. You know, no matter what. Um, and, you know, I was lucky enough straight out of grad school. I, I got a job uh, working in worldwide acquisitions out at Sony Pictures Entertainment. And I'm still there, uh, but I'm in Screen Gems now. Uh, but uh, I got a job there and, you know, I would start at 9 o'clock every day. But before that, I would get up at 4 a.m. and I would write. You know, we don't have kids then, but I would write for three hours and, um, on my own work, I would then get in the car, drive out there and do my job. Um, Safe to say I wasn't up till midnight. Um, I'm a a morning writer. I really operate well in the mornings so I can get up then. But I did that for years. You know, I did that for many years. And um, it only ended not long ago, actually, you know, uh, with the pandemic and stuff. I was still getting up at at 4am and I was writing for two, two and a half hours until my kids get up. I'd have breakfast. Um, with my kids, then I'd get in the car, I'd drive to work, and I'd do my job all day. You know, um, I, I I don't believe there's any other way of doing it. Everyone's circumstances are different. If you want to be a writer, you write, and and you find time to write. It doesn't matter if it's thirty to forty minutes, an hour, or three hours. You find time to write, or you don't. And I wanted it, you know. And I realised after a few years of doing this that I loved it. I loved writing and um, I loved uh, getting up at that time and doing it. I was tired. Mm. Some days I would cut myself a break, but I think discipline is something that, you know, look, if I have a modicum of talent somewhere in my body, great. 98% of what's got me where I am right now is, is 
blood, sweat, and tears. And that's what it takes. You know, um, you can't teach talent. Some, you know, there's always going to be better writers than me. Um, but I don't know what makes best and better, to be honest with you. I am determined to continue doing it. I just started work on my first novel, writing a book. Um, I'm still writing screenplays. Uh, but I break my day up. I start, I get a schedule for myself and I stick to it. You know, um, life happens. You have to be flexible, but I think discipline is something that you have to have. Um, if you don't have the means to sit around all day and write, you know, Do you, you have to write that way. Yeah, no, I can. I mean, I completely agree. I'm curious if you're, if you're willing to talk a little bit on your schedule, the way you break it up. And also the part two to that is, do you put in your schedule a research time prior to writing? Do you always have like pockets of research with the novel or with a screenplay? Um, the novel is fairly new to me. So I'm trying, I'm, you know, there's some great stuff on this masterclass.com, by the way. If anyone's listening and wants to listen to some good material about how to research a novel, yeah. Um, Dan Brown, Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood have master classes on there that are phenomenal. Um, I've been listening to those. You know, I bring to novel writing already a process anyway. But um, research for me, it comes in two forms. One, uh, a lot of my, um, I'm, I'm a horror fan. I write horror thriller and I write psychological horror thriller. So that's what I like to write. Um, and so, the research is fairly minimal. I'm not doing biopics or any of that kind of stuff, but what I'm doing now with the novel is, yes, I'm doing a lot of research. In fact, I'm, I'm just researching at the moment. I'm using a uh, stimulus to, you know, I have a workbook basically. And in that workbook, I have characters that I ask certain questions of. Um, I have the world. I have the plot points. Um, I have research links and I break it up into headings. And as I'm reading through the stimulus, you know, whether it be a book or articles or websites, something will pop into my mind about my character and I become more and more uh, connected to the character that way. So I know what topics I want to write about. I know what I'm doing that way. And I've looked for connective tissue in books and, and stuff that I can read, you know, sit and read for three and four hours at a time. And But while I'm doing that, I have my workbook open. So if something pops or I read something and I go, oh, that, that's useful to this or that's useful to that plot or that subplot, um, I'll write it down as a plot point. But I don't break it up. I do break my day up right now. I'm, I'm, I'm working for Screen Gems right now. So a lot of my day at the moment is still you know, working from home, reading scripts, analyzing material, looking at um, acquisition packages to see what, you know, uh, looking at the scripts that come in those acquisition packages to see if they're a viable property or not. Um, but around that, uh, when I'm not on a call or I'm not doing that or I'm not answering emails, I'm fitting in one to two hours of research. Um, I'm also rewriting a TV pilot at the moment. That's in with my managers um, that we're getting some real interest on. Um, so I try to break that up, yes, in, into certain times, but life happens, man. You have to be a little flexible. I don't beat myself up if I don't get to certain areas that I want to. Yeah. Um, but right now, I don't have to be at my office. So my day is a little more flexible sometimes. And I make sure that, you know, um, 
there's a saying, you know, my, my amazing father-in-law has this great uh, thing, this great little poster that sits on top of his Apple computer, and it says, give your time a job. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, you know, in other words, you know, if, if you're sitting there doing nothing, you shouldn't be, you know. Um, and I think as a writer, everyone's process is different. There is no right or wrong way to do it. You, you can... What you do in the beginning is you is you research as many different processes as you can and you find the one that works for you. And and I've done that. You know, it's not perfect. I'm not perfect. But all I know is I'd love to tell stories and I want to keep being involved in doing that. And, and so I find that time, you know. Um, and over the years, it's, you know, I spent... I'm really not... You know, I'm not a voluminous writer because I love development and I loved being inside the studio system as a development story editor, you know, acquisitions uh, junior, all that kind of stuff. I love that world and understanding that world. So I think as a writer, if you can, if you're looking to get in, you really do need to look at assistantships and internships to begin with, as cliched as it sounds, yeah. it is the way in even if you only spend a few years doing it in order to understand how the machinations work. Um, but uh, that's what I did. I fell in love with the development side. I like taking people's uh, projects, not just my own, and, and seeing the potential in them and being able to develop them into a, into a, a feature film, which is where I've mostly worked. Um, and I, I like that process. I like the collaborative process of filmmaking. Um, which comes from the theater, you know? Yeah, no, it, yes, it definitely does. Um, talking a little bit more about screen gems and Sony, are there any standout mistakes you've witnessed from writers or hit it out of the park in pitches, you know, common themes of the top performers you've witnessed? Um, standouts. Let me see. Uh, we're working on a, you know, I, I think not just from screenplay level, this comes also from packaging as well. I mean, look, I can read a script and in 10 to 15 pages, I, I, I know whether I can throw it away or not. <laughs> and I think, that, I think that comes from really spending time. I think people don't spend enough time rewriting them. Um, that's new, new writers, that is. They don't spend enough time on really looking at those first the structural elements and the format elements of their screenplays and, and the character development, all those things that go together to make a good screenplay. You know, you can tell through dialogue, you can tell through description how experienced someone is. You know, we uh, we were, before COVID happened, we were halfway through uh, a Sam Raimi film called Shrine, uh, starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Evan Scaliotopoulos is the writer-director on that one. It's his first directing gig. Um, it's going to be a great horror movie, and it's based on a James Herbert novel. Um, but when I, when you read, when when Evan's first draft of the adaptation came in, I remember sitting there at the end of it, going, "That is probably the first, the best first draft of anything I've ever read." It, it was extraordinary, and and I think it was extraordinary because he was able to take the book, which is fairly long winded and dated in some areas, but and really pick out the emotional core of the main characters and what's important to those main characters. You know, a lot of scripts you read by 30 pages, 20 to 30 pages sometimes, 
you have no idea what the main character really wants anymore. And I think that's telling, you know, um, your main character should remain on point with what they want at all times, you know, and any scene that doesn't service that doesn't belong in the, in the, in the script as a general level. Uh, no, but I think the main mistakes that I see are in formatting sometimes, but it's really not spending enough time rewriting and rewriting and rewriting that feature, giving it to someone who you are, who you trust and get notes from them. Um, and then rewriting it again and rewriting it again. And that's what these guys do. You know, that they rewrite and they rewrite and then they give it to the studio executives, you know, and they give their notes, which they ignore, and then they rewrite it again. <laughs> um, but Evan is a tremendous writer and is, is gonna, he's going to kick this out of the park. But I think that is the difference between a new screenwriter and a, and a good screenwriter is, you know, there's another writer we're working called Blair Butler who is tremendous. She's, she's, a, she's amazing. Um, but I think the attention to detail and the ability to really structure a character's or, uh, you know, a group of characters journey through a screenplay, um, and put obstacles in their way and keep them, keep them going, you know, um, toward that, that thing that they want most and then snatching it from them or not snatching it from them in the end. But for me, it's very much about that first 10 to 15 pages. If we don't get an understanding of who your character is, what the world is, what the tone is, and what that character really wants, then then it's usually getting deleted. Yeah. Yeah, with, with the people that you trust, are you constantly bouncing ideas off of them, or do you have mentors that you reference frequently? Um, I have... Uh, Actually, I have a very good friend of mine who I went through AFI with um, who reads all of my material. Um, yeah. Him and I were in the same class, same screenwriting classes at, university, at, at AFI at grad school together. And, and early on, I realized the notes he was giving to other people in class were extraordinary. <laughs> and he went on, he, he's gone on to be a writer as well. You know, I uh, just finished staffing on a show and sold a... Uh, Sold a, a development, a concept to Pixar, and and you know, he's in the family. He's in the family kind of genre. I'm completely the opposite, so our stuff never, never really crosses over. But at the same time, at the core of both of those genres, you know, is a you know anyone can watch Five Students Get Slaughtered in a in the woods, you know, in a horror movie. Yeah. Um. But if you don't connect with any of those any of those people on an emotional level and, and identify with what they're going through and really travel with them, it becomes streaming fodder that no one watches eventually, you know, but I think, you know, here, my friend has a really good eye for development and he's never really moved into the development world, but I trust him a lot. And he's the first that I give everything to. And then he gives me all these great notes and I rewrite it, you know, and then there's a couple of colleagues that I work with at Sony that I'll let read it after that. Um, I'm also very lucky to have two young dynamic reps, you know, at uh, my managers who have a good eye and good development eye and they read and give good notes. Um, very rarely is a first draft any good as Evans was for us. And I dare say he's probably had his mentors look over stuff too, like Sam Raimi. Um, yeah. You know, Sam Raimi gives you notes. You think about them very seriously. Um, and so... You know, I have a couple of people that I do that with, but through my management team, we, and nothing ever gets sent out until I've probably taken on board three or four sets of notes from trusted people and then rewritten 
and then rewritten again, you know, um, and it can take, a, it can take as long as it takes, but, um, you don't want to be sending anything out in this town that is half done because you're just burning bridges and, and, uh, no one will read your stuff again, you know? Um, so you really do have to take the time. People, a lot of people I've worked with, you know, even, you know, that I mentor and writers that come to me and send me scripts and then, and I'm not taking submissions right now if anyone's listening, but, um, <laughs> uh, uh, I, the first thing I'll do is give them a whole set of notes. Yeah. And then you're seeing if, then you're seeing if they have the, the ability or, or really the discipline to, to implement them. Um, and I think that I never send it, like I said, I never send anything out unless it's been through several ringers first. Ultimately, as a writer, you have to decide what's best for your material. You know, not everyone's notes are going to be right. Um, but, uh, I think the ability to take on notes and then discern what's best for you is, is a process and it's something that's going to happen to you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You brought up a great point. You know, make sure that it's not half baked. You can burn bridges. And uh, a lot of that is, you know, relationships and that that word networking. Do you have any views on professional, you know, relationships in the entertainment industry? Um, I only know the way that I did it. Um, There is no one way of doing it. I know that um, when I was at grad school, I didn't know anyone in the industry. You know, a lot of a lot of guys come to grad school and they've already, you know, worked for production houses and all these things. And I just didn't know anyone. You know, so I had a friend who was temping out at Sony and he said, why don't you jump in the temp pool, get to meet people? Um, and my classes in my second year were a little more sporadic. So I was able to do that one or two days a week. And I did, you know, um, I did that. I went out to the studio and I started temping with people and got to meet people in marketing and, you know, um, and eventually, once I finished grad school, after about six or eight months out of grad school, excuse me, I got, I got a job um, with uh, the head of uh, Worldwide Acquisitions, who was new from Fox at the time, and, and um, he took me on as an assistant. And uh, we're talking about the president of a division, a fairly high-up executive. Yeah. Um, and through that kind of job, uh, he hired me because, you know, I'm, I wasn't a career assistant. He probably should have hired a career assistant, to be honest with me. But um, <laughs> he wanted me to read scripts, um, and he knew I had a master's in screenwriting, and he was interested in that side, not just my admin skills. And, and I I needed a job, you know. Um, we developed a professional relationship. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've known him now for 11 years, and I still don't know him that well, to be honest with you. Um, but that, that's the way he wanted it, and uh, that worked for me at the time. And I learned a great deal. Not only that, on that desk, I got to meet some of the top producers and agents in all of the agencies around town um, by talking to them on the phone, by telling them my boss was not available, but I was, yeah. um, <laughs> by, by getting to know their assistants, who are now junior agents. Um, and I think that if you want to get into the industry, if you're looking to be a writer or you're looking to be a filmmaker, or you're looking to get into the executive side of, of uh, you know, what they call Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood's a suburb of Los Angeles, as far as I'm concerned. But um, uh, then you do, I do recommend an assistant job. Getting Becoming someone's assistant, but be strategic about it. Work out what you want to do. If you're a writer and you want to write for TV, you're probably a writer's assistant in TV. 
you know, if you want to get into the acquisitions and development and production game, you're probably trying to get in through a temp pool. I know that's hard now because we're living through the weirdest times I've ever lived through. Um, but uh, that that that's how I did it. And, um, you know, I kept going until I found the right thing for me. And then, uh, and then I got to know people. Um, and, I, and I still know a lot of those people who've gotten promoted, who've sold films, who've become big producers. And any time that I have a new polished screenplay, I know that I can just call my managers and say, hey, why don't you send it over to John or, or David or someone like that? And, and they will. Yeah. Um, in, your, in your time, you know, being, being the assistant, is there anyone that stands out to you that was uh, particularly incredible at communicating communicating what they wanted, asking, anything along those lines? Is that there is a difference, and I have noticed a difference between good assistants and, and bad assistants, you know, and being an assistant is first and foremost an administrative job. You have to be organized, you have to be focused, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to say I always have been, um, but when you're at a job, you shouldn't be sitting at your desk writing on your script. That is not your job. Um, your job is to be focused and make sure that whoever you're working for is paying you your wage has what they need um, and, and, is, and is well taken care of. That's what they'll remember. And these guys will, a lot of the cases, and, go, and these men and women will grow you if they see that you are someone they want to put the time into. Um, and I think being focused, you know, being the assistant of a president of a division of Sony, I got to deal with, you know, if there's one guy that I do admire, it's David Diamond, and he won't mind me using his name. I've known David for a long time now, and he is uh, the assistant to Tony Vincent Aquera, who's the chairman of Sony Pictures Entertainment. David is an exceedingly organized, congenial professional. Um, he's a career assistant, but when you look at someone like that and the professionalism that they bring with the congeniality and the ability to be flexible and kind, um, when they are clearly the top assistant at the studio, um, <laughs> dealing with someone like David and learning from him has been an amazing thing for me when I was assistant early on, you know, um, of listening to how they do things, you know, and learning from them. Um, when you're in these situations, it's always better to listen than to speak, especially early on, because you can't learn anything while you're talking. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's what I found too is, you know, as you can tell, I, I do like to talk, so I've had to learn that the hard way sometimes. But, <laughs> um, but there is those those top level assistants. You know, a lot of them are plucked from agencies where they all they already have a really big network of contacts. Yeah. Um, you know, being too aggressive and and uh, and uh, annoying people of that nature uh, or or of that level is not the way to go. You know. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think David is, a, is an example of someone who's always been very professional with what he does. Um, you know, uh, and there were a couple of others who worked for, for the heads of the studio who went on to the, pretty much do whatever they want. You know, once they've done their two or three years, you know, if you're not a career assistant and you have aspirations in another department of the studio, if you've done a good job for your boss over those two to three years, chances are you're going to land probably where you want it. Yeah. You know, um, so, but it is, you know, you do have to, you're going to have to suck eggs in the beginning. You know, <laughs> mail, rooms, mail, room, mail rooms turn into internships, which turn into assistantships, and they can take a few years, you know. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, there have been those. Um, 
you don't and you know what i've also learned is there there are some real pieces of work who who are nasty people um who are who rule by fear and i don't think you have to be that way to get what you want uh and i've i've come across those people uh, a lot of the times in this industry and uh i've learned from them you know i've learned that you, you don't have to be that way you know um you really don't yeah yeah it doesn't that's not <laughs> i happen to agree um thank you for that thank you for for twisting the yeah. question there and answering it i really appreciate it uh we're down to the final three here um sure. changes made that have increased positivity and decreased negativity in your life are there any increased positivity yeah wow um man that's a good question decreased negativity uh I think the ability to be present instead of, you know, it's very easy to engage in the stories that you tell yourself that you want to be, you know, it's very easy to come out of grad school and see yourself accepting an Oscar for your screenplay, you know, but I think the minute that you start to view your creativity, the minute that you start to view what you think you love as a way to an award of some kind is where you will get lost. Um, I was lucky enough to never really invest in that, but I've seen it people, I've seen it happen to people. I've been to grad school with people who don't write anymore. They spent all that money on grad school and they just, they don't write because they didn't love it enough. They fell in love with the idea of being a writer, the idea of being an award winner of some kind. And I think if you can take yourself out of that space and really look at what you do and whether you love it or not, enough to stick at it for the rest of your life um whether you win an award at 30 or whether you win an award at 55 um i think the negativity stems from the superficiality that exists in our industry to be honest yeah and i've been able to look at a really deep um set of layers inside the studio system and what makes you know uh someone really passionate and positive about what they do and, and what doesn't. And I think those expectations, you know, I think looking at celebrity and looking at fame and looking at awards, you know, the TV does a lot of that for us, but that's not what this is. This is a grind. It is a, it, it is hard work. It is, it is, you will get rejection after rejection. And I think learning to deal with that in a centered, um, spiritual way almost will see you continue to do what you love um, on a positive level. Does that mean for you uh, meditation? I do meditate. Um, I, I must admit, well, I am a meditator. Um, it comes in various forms. Um, sure. I wasn't always that way. Um, I do. I do. Um, I do meditate. Uh, I also talk to a lot of people like my friend, Matt, you know, I have confidants that I like to talk to about what's going on, you know, um, in the industry or work life. Um, but I do, I do try to keep it centered. You know, I have two small children as well. They keep me fairly in the moment, but, yes. um, <laughs> I do find meditation very useful. Um, uh, I do have a program 
where I do that through, which has helped me tremendously to reject the negative parts of my life yeah. and to embrace more positive attitude. Um, never been a religious person, but I am much more of a spiritual person than I used to be. That's for sure. And I think if you can find, if you can believe in something bigger than you and really mean it, um, I think that that for me um, has changed my life in, in that way, taken a lot of the negative out of it anyway. Yeah. Thank you for that. I know someone's going to, that's going to resonate with someone. It resonated with me. And I know it'll resonate with someone else. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, most gifted books. Uh, any come to mind, favorite books, gifts, books you've most gifted? Most gifted books? Yeah. Books that you've, you've gifted to other people or any that stand out in your mind at the current time. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. My <laughs> wife does all that. Mainly kids' books. Um, okay. <laughs> um, most gifted books. Probably, um, I think early on, I knew her, Eckhart Tolle. I really enjoyed reading that. It was the first self-help book that I'd read, and I recommended that to a lot of people, The Power of Now as well. Um, there was something in those teachings that I liked that, that, that probably sparked a lot of that positive thinking. But, um, you know, there is another... There is another um, there's a writing book called The Art of Dramatic Writing by Laos Egri. And it is it, it was one of my textbooks at grad school. And when I read it, it was just revelatory. Um, you know, and it's not a, it's not a new book. Um, and in fact, I forget, um, I forget when it is. I'm actually on my computer here. I'm going to do it. But um, it is, a, it's called The Art of Dramatic Writing. And it's by a guy named Laos Egri, L-E-J-O-S. E G R I, and um, it was just what it had to say about the art of dramatic writing, um, and the in any form. Um, it's eleven dollars ninety nine on Amazon. Um, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. I have the hardcover. That's worth a book. I gave that to a couple of young writers that I worked with over the years as a way to really look at character and creating the world. Um, um, there's there's definitely those. Um, you know, the, the, look, the Harry Potter series of picture books are amazing. We've gifted those to a couple of friends. They're only on book four right now, but yeah. they are these illustrated books of the stories. Phenomenal. Um, uh, other than that, um, I usually gift, you know, Amazon gift cards for people. Yeah. You know, in the, that they'll find their own books because unless it's instructional or functional, you know, um, uh, I'm a big Theodore Dostoevsky fan. I love his books, The Demon and the Idiot, and you know, uh, the brother, the brothers Karamazov is one of my favourite books of all time. Um, I've never gifted those because they are they are a unique taste <laughs> um, these days in our short, in our short attention spans. Yeah. But um, um, mainly writing books, I think, or suggestions, um, considering that's what I do. Uh, yeah. Um, there is this book called Gideon, and I read it twice, and I've never been able to find it again. It's not on Amazon, and I just can't find it. It's a fiction, and it's all that comes up are these biblical things, and it's not what I'm looking for. So, what was it about? Anyone knows? I don't know. Oh, okay, it's been like years and years and years, and that's why I wanted to read it again, and I forget. I think there's some kind of assassin, or I don't know what it is, but I remember reading it, going, "I'm going to leave that on my shelf. I like that." Huh. And it's, it's packed away somewhere. I think it must have 
got lost to it. I don't know. Anyway, I never gifted that, so it doesn't really help with your question. But um, uh, I think that's probably mostly what I've, I've gifted over the years. And now we gift a lot of kids' books, you know, um, the, the big Nate books. Uh, my kid, um, my, my little boy loves Diary of a Wimpy Kid. He's read all of them. Um, <laughs> We get those, and they're really good starter books. Once once your your kids start to leave the picture books behind, you know, uh, Big Nate and and uh, and uh, Goosebumps, you know, R.L. Stein's an amazingly pro- prolific writer, um, just really knows that genre. But other than that, um, there that's probably not a lot of other books I've gifted. That's great. No, that's great. That's absolutely great. Um, final question for you. Metaphorically mm-hmm. speaking, a word or a phrase that you could put on a billboard for millions of people to see. Does anything come to mind? Mm, that's a good one. Well, you can't see this, but I do have tattoos. And uh, on, on my right arm, which is a sleeve, is a tribute to my writing. And it has my three favorite, uh, my three favorite writing quotes. Uh, as well as like a big uh, quill and a pen and ink blots all down my arm intermixed and they all disappear into this big book near my wrist. And my three quotes are, in struggle there's strength. And my favourite of all is, is the gift is nothing without the work. It doesn't matter what gift you have or what talent you have, you know, if you don't put in the work, it's useless. Um, And... Fear is a story ill-told. You know, fear is something that will cripple us if we let it seep too far into our being. You know, um, being able to stop being afraid and just do um, was something I had to get through too. Um, but uh, they're, they're my three favorites, but yeah. Those probably are more information than you did. No, those are great. <laughs> it's a digital billboard. It changes. That's Those are great. I love that. That's... You're absolutely right, though. You, you, fear can be so paralyzing, and there's nothing on the other side of it. <laughs> it's almost always made up. And it can stop us from really realizing our potential. Yeah. Um, and it, it can send us down very dark rabbit holes, you know. And fear, in a lot of ways, for me, were just these, they came from these stories that I'd made up in my head that came from these false expectations that I had for myself in my life. You know, and, and I'd made up these stories and they become, if you keep them there long enough, they can become a kind of a truth that you tell yourself when in actual reality, they're nothing more than that story that you created in your head. And if you can free yourself of that and stop being afraid of those kind of, you know, stop being afraid of, of, uh, of those stories or stop investing in them so much, you'll realize that, you know, um, your day-to-day is as it's supposed to be, you know, and there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, you know, that took me a long time to get my head around, but fear can be very crippling. Um, and I understand that fear is also grounded in certain, you know, diseases that, that we that we are, you know, disorders that we don't have any control over, but I'm talking about ones that I can control you know, if I'm willing to meditate on them and, and do the daily work to, to free myself of them. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing all of this, Steve. This is a great conversation. I'm so glad we could chat. Well, of course, man. Anytime. And thanks for reaching out. I appreciate it. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add here before we end? 
no, I don't think so. Um, okay. You know, I think you know. I think your questions were great. Um, it's it's nice to connect with you. Uh, I look forward to continuing con- a connection. Yeah. You know. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I I have been lucky enough. You know, to uh, I also have a website if anyone's interested. Yes. Um, that I that I do some work through. Um, uh, I have a website called thenewscreenwriter.com where you know. You can go, and the reason this came about, I'll I'll finish this up quickly, but, you know, with Screen Gems and Sony and my type of job, I I can't take unsolicited submissions. We're not allowed to do that. So people are always hitting me up on LinkedIn saying, hey, can you read my script? And I I just can't. (laughs) I can't do it. Um, But, you know, for those new screenwriters out there and people who are wanting to get into it, I have a website where um, I I do teaching. it's no screencraft.com. You know, screencraft is a, is a corporation, but it's, you know, right. at least, you know, if you want someone to read your script, I don't do it for free. So, you know, um, it, is a, it is a bit of a plug, but at the same time, you know that I'm reading your script. I don't have any employees. I don't employ CAA interns to do it. I do it myself. Um, and I give, you know, studio coverage, studio level coverage, um, you know, I'll help you build your screenplay. I'll help you build your outlines. You know, um, it's just somewhere where, because I, I like to teach. And it's something as I get a bit older, you know, in the future, you know, I'd like to kind of do at a university or grad school level. So anyone who's, who's wanting to look at a service like that, you know, um, it's it's uh, thenewscreenwriter.com. It's fantastic. And I'll put all those links in the bio of this conversation. So everyone will be able to okay, find man. you. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking this time. You're welcome, Clayton. All the best to you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Steve Douglas Craig. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. 